got some famous words here that you may well remember or recognise. By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on poplars we hang our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? Well, how many of you now are humming Boney M in your heads? Well, I guess if you weren't before, you probably are now. And uh, I apologise if it's going to be going over your head for the rest of the time now. But, um, but these words are actually words that are, are tainted with grief and with bitterness. These are the words of, of God's people as they're being taken off into captivity. They're 500 plus miles away from home. Everything they had loved and, and lived for was gone. Maybe even family and friends that they cared about had been killed. Nothing was going to be the same for them anymore. They were hopeless and helpless. And here, in the marshes of the Euphrates, they're weeping as, as they remember. And as they mourn, their, their captors torment them further. Play your songs of joy they say but now is not the time to sing now is the time to grieve and actually this tormenting is just a veiled invitation for them to forget and to conform because after all they're Babylonians now so how can they sing the song of the Lord in a strange land well, that's, that's the context that we find ourselves in Daniel chapter 1. Babylon is the superpower. We read in, uh, in verse 1, do turn up, Daniel, if you've got it in front of you. I've just lost it, but uh, here we are. Um, yeah, Daniel chapter 1. So, Babylon is the superpower at the time. The, God's people... The kingdom has, has, has been divided some years previously. Israel in the north has already been taken captive by the Assyrians. And now Judah, the small little southern um, country, is, is, is swept over by uh, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. It was no problem at all for them. A bit like, I guess, Chelsea playing St Albans City. It's no contest. So Jerusalem is, is fallen, we read in these, these first few verses. And did you notice who is, is deported? Verses 3 and 4. It's young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well informed, quick to understand and qualified to serve in the king's palace. This is actually the first of three deportations and by, by the king of Babylon. This time, he takes the, the creme de la creme. He takes the, the cream of, of the society here. Young men who are handsome, who are bright, intelligent, able. Probably, they would have been teenagers. So I guess, as we were looking at um, WNT and FNT, just like you guys. 
So this is the situation we find Daniel and his mates. They're, they're far from home. They're in a strange land. Totally different culture, different language, different food, different traditions. What's going to happen? How are they going to respond? How can they sing the song of the Lord in a strange land? Well, the book of Daniel tells us, takes us through the story, unfolds us, and, and we're going to be seeing it over the next, the next few weeks. Uh, chapter 1 is, is, of course, a very good place to start. And this morning, we're going to see two main things. We're going to see, first of all, that, that God reigns, even in a hostile world. And we're going to see how we should live for him in a hostile world. But we're going to start with uh, the second one there. Uh, living for God in a hostile world. I want you to think, first of all now, how, how would you have responded if you were in that situation? These are, these are young guys, these are teenagers, far away from home, in a totally alien environment. They would have been scared, confused, possibly even doubting everything that they'd grown up believing. And I guess it, it would have been easy for them to, to just kind of segregate off and just become a kind of isolated Jewish ghetto in the midst of, of Babylon. It's a strange language and a, and a culture. Maybe if we just kind of stick together and ignore everything else, we'll be alright. But actually, the first thing we learn from these guys' response is that they don't hide away. And when studying Daniel, sometimes we, we can jump too quickly onto verse 8 and to look at the, the stand that Daniel makes. But actually, before we look at what Daniel says no to, we need to spend some time thinking about what he says yes to. Because Daniel and his friends, they didn't retreat and withdraw completely from the outside world into a kind of holy huddle or a, or a comfortable bubble. They said yes to a couple of things. Firstly, they agreed to a, a pagan education. Did you see that in, um, in those first few verses there? That they were to be trained in the language and literature of the Babylonians. It's a fairly clever strategy really from, from, from the king to kind of just kind of brainwash and indoctrinate the elite of, of your enemies. But Daniel and his friends, they agreed to this education. And no doubt this education would have included all kinds of dodgy stuff. Sorcery, divination, all kinds of weird and wonderful things. But alongside that, I'm sure there would have been incredible insights and wisdom that would have been gleaned from what was now a very powerful and far-reaching empire. Daniel and his mates were happy to engage with that education that they were receiving rather than refuse it. And as you look back through the history of, of the church, often the response of, of Christian groups has been to, to withdraw completely from society. 
You just have to think of communities like the Amish community or perhaps closer to home in, in this country. Think of, of the closed brethren, for example. Groups, communities of Christians who, who try to just shut out the world. And I guess that's the same kind of thinking that, that goes behind setting up the private Christian schools. Now this morning I don't want to go into the rights and wrongs of, of such schools or, or, or ways of life. I guess with faith schools in particular, I don't think there is a, a clear biblical imperative either way. I think sending your child to, to a faith school, for example, is a decision for, for, for parents and the individual children to, to, to work out. But what I will say is that what we need to be doing is helping our children to be able to engage biblically with what's going on around them, with what they're consuming on TV, what they're listening to, and what they're learning at school as well. Maybe as, as a parent you're, you're concerned about maybe your, your primary school doing trips to mosques and synagogues and, and that kind of thing. Well, why not offer to the teachers and to the school to your, your services to go along and to, to help out as a, as a mum on, on one of those days to find out firsthand what happens and to be able to talk it through with, with your children afterwards. Often when it comes to engaging with the world, our focus can be on kind of media and TV and, and that kind of thing. But what about when our kids are at secondary school? When they're studying things like Samuel Beckett and Waiting for Godot or, or Endgame or, or things like that. Fantastic literature, but depressingly bleak. Samuel Beckett, a staunch atheist, devoid of hope. What I guess uh, I'm getting at here is that a biblical, critical engagement with culture is, is what we really need rather than um, divorcing ourselves and separating off. So Daniel and his friends said yes to that pagan education. But look what else they said yes to. Verse 7 they said yes to new names. The chief official gave them new names to Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Now names in the Old Testament and, and at, at this time were, were often very important, very significant, carried a lot of meaning to them. And it seems that, that Nebuchadnezzar is deliberately attempting to kind of distort the meaning of, of their names here. Daniel means something like the Lord is my judge. Hananiah means beloved by the Lord. Mishael means who is as the Lord. Azariah, the Lord is my help. Whereas Belteshazzar means something about a god called Bel. Shadrach is, means um, illumined by, by the Aku, the, the sun god. Meshach, rather than who is as the Lord, is who is like Aku. Abednego means servant of, of Nego. 
rather than the Lord is my help. But interestingly, Daniel and his friends are prepared to say yes to that. They they go along with it. They don't hide, but they get stuck in. They engage with the situation they face themselves in. And as we were thinking earlier this morning with Bex, as Christians today living in the UK, we are aliens and strangers. Heaven is our home. We're in exile here. And the message for us is, is not to hide, but to engage. Let me just flick over to Jeremiah 29. This is, uh, this is a letter to the exiles in Babylon. Listen to what the Lord says to them. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. So did you see what what Jeremiah says here? He says to them, even though they're in captivity, that they're to seek the prosperity of the city. They're to get on with life. They're to work hard. They're to engage. They're not to hide away. When I first became a Christian, I thought that the only job that was worth doing was to become a missionary or, or a preacher or, or, or something like that. That that was the only thing in this life that, that was worth doing. But as I look back on that now, I can see that actually that's, that's very naive. And actually not what the Bible would, would, would hold up as well. Because part of what it means for us to be in God's image is that we work, is that we enjoy our work and find satisfaction in doing it well. Actually, the Bible is clear that that work has an inherent dignity and we can bring glory to God wherever we are, whatever we're doing, whether we're a road sweeper, an accountant, a pastor or, or a traffic warden. But the trouble is, in our minds, We can sometimes think that that the Sunday school teacher spending a couple of hours a week with a group of children, that that time is more important and significant to God than the teacher spending 40 hours a week over five days with 30 kids. The truth is God has, has placed us in the individual situations we find ourselves. And he wants us to work hard. He wants us to, to seek the prosperity of the city we live in. He wants us to, to serve him and bring, give him glory by the way that we work and engage. So as you look through the Old Testament, people like Daniel, 
People like Joseph made a massive contribution to their world and their situations by working hard, by engaging and by sticking with it. So the first thing we learn about living for God in a hostile world is that, is that we don't need to hide away. But back to Daniel, the second thing we learn uh, and that this chapter teaches us is, is not to compromise. Look at what Daniel says no to. So throughout history, we've seen that sometimes Christians have chosen to, to hide themselves away from the world. But at the same time, as you look back through history, it's, it's pretty clear that, that Christians have been guilty of making exactly the opposite mistake. That Christians have, have too often let themselves be squeezed into the mould of the world. That they've compromised and given up on making a stand where they've needed to. And so have lost all distinctiveness. So Daniel and his friends fully engaged with this new world. He said yes to the pagan education and to the new name. But he also said no when he needed to. Look at verse 8. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. Daniel resolved some of the older translations say that he, he purposed in his heart not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. It's actually, I guess, a bit unclear as to exactly what the, what the problem was for, for Daniel. What it was exactly that he was opposed to. And some say that actually the food that they would have been eating wouldn't have been kosher. So as a, as a God-fearing Jew, well, yeah, according to Levitical law, he would have to forego that. Some say, actually, this food would, would probably have been offered to idols, the same for the wine as well. And some say, actually, having such close fellowship with the king by sharing his food, maybe that was what Daniel was wanting to, to distance himself from. But... The, the Daniel chapter 1 here doesn't make it entirely clear what it is. But in actual fact, I don't think it, it matters too much that we know exactly what it was that he was um, taking a stand on. What's important for us is that he decided to take a stand and that he resolved in his own mind, in his own conscience, not to compromise. And his decision to, to make a stand is a very courageous decision. But actually, I think there's a lot we can learn from, from how Daniel says no as well. Look at the way he, he goes about it. He's very gracious. He doesn't kind of get trumpets out and make a big song and dance or look at me making this stand. He's, he's quiet. He goes to this guard and explains exactly the situation to him. And obviously this, this guard is, is scared for his life, we read. that The king would have my head because of you, in verse 10, this guard says. A failure to do his duty, this guard knew all too well, would 
result in the end of his life. Nebuchadnezzar had a reputation for being a particularly vicious man. You just have to look into uh, 2 Kings 25. 2 Kings 25. Um, Zedekiah rebels against Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar gets Zedekiah's sons, kills them all in front of him, and then gouges out um, Zedekiah's eyes. So that's the last thing that he sees. It's pretty pretty brutal. So you can understand this guy being a bit scared as Daniel comes to him with, with, uh, with, with his request. So Daniel explains graciously with this guy what's going on and proposes the idea of this, this 10 day test which of course uh, as we know they, they pass with flying colours. I guess it's important to say also that, that these verses don't advocate a, a vegetarian diet. Some of you may be more pleased to hear that than others. But what's important here is that, that Daniel makes a stand. And he makes a stand in the small things to begin with. Because actually, God is concerned with the ordinary and the mundane. If we make a stand and if we're faithful in the small things, then that helps us as we face bigger and greater challenges as, as life continues. And we may not all have to face a fiery furnace or a den of lions like Daniel. But it was Daniel's faithfulness in these small things here that surely helped him later on as he faced those, those trying circumstances. So what does this mean for us? Where are we tempted to compromise? Where do we need to draw the line? Maybe at work, it's um, all too tempting sometimes to, to make false promises over the phone when someone rings up asking what's happened to an order and we say, oh yeah, that, it, it's gone, when we know full well that, that it hasn't yet. Or when someone rings up asking to, to speak to your boss and your boss says, tell them I'm, I'm not here. It's very tempting to just to, to give a half-truth on the phone, to tell people what they want to hear. Maybe when it comes to, to travel claims and overtime claims and that kind of thing, everyone else always puts a little bit more on their form, so why don't we? It kind of goes along with the territory. As Christians, as God's people, we're called to be salt and light. We're called to be distinctive. And what does it mean for us socially as well? When I was at university, I, I took the decision not to drink any alcohol for the three years that I was there. Not because I think drinking alcohol is wrong and forbidden, but I know that I'm weak. And I know that would be one less thing to have to worry about. So I decided that's the line I'm going to draw. When I'm out with my football mates, um, I'm just going to be on the orange juice. So we need to engage with culture. But at the same time, we cannot compromise. But did you notice, verse 8, the language that, that Daniel uses? 
to describe um, what's going there. Daniel resolved not to defile himself. It's the idea of being polluted or, or contaminated, becoming impure. In Daniel's mind, it's the idea of something coming in between his relationship with God. And it's something that he resolved in his heart to make a stand on. It's clearly something that he thought long and hard about and didn't just make on the spur of the moment. His, his primary concern was his, was his relationship with God. And I wonder, where are we tempted to compromise in that area? A good friend of mine works extremely hard for, for quite a prestigious firm, a very demanding job. Um, and he's very committed to, to his house group as well. And for him, he resolved to make it a priority. So that when house group, when the night of house group came up, he would leave his job at 5.30 on the dot, whatever was happening that day. And that's not easy. But because house group, because his relationship with God was, was his priority, he, he wanted to make the stand that one night a week, his priority was not his job, but his relationship with God and meeting with um, the community of his people. That's the stand that, that he makes. It's the line that he draws in the sand. So where is it for you, I wonder? Well, there's, there's lots that we can learn from Daniel about living in a hostile world, from what he says yes to and what he says no to. But actually, I think we'll see over the next few weeks as we go through the book of Daniel, the star of this book is not Daniel. Fantastic though his example is, the star of this book is the Lord. And the underlying reason why, why Daniel is able to live the, the way that he does is because he, he knows this truth, that God reigns even in a hostile world. That's the big theme of this book. We see it um, time and time again as we go through the first six chapters of, of the story here. And even in the the, the remaining chapters in the kind of the prophecy, the, the apocalyptic stuff, it's also right there as well. Our God reigns, even in a hostile world. And it would have been easy for, for Daniel to doubt that, given the situations that he found himself in. Very understandable. This is the Lord's special people, the people that were set apart for God. Here they are, conquered by a pagan nation, living far away from home, the promised land, serving pagan gods, helpless, hopeless. It would have been easy for Daniel and his mates to, to doubt that truth, but they don't doubt that truth. And actually, as we'll see throughout this, the, the rest of this book, and right through this chapter as well, that, that this truth is gloriously on display. First of all, we see that God reigns over nations. 
looking at right in verse 2, the second verse of this book, we see God's sovereignty, we see God's reign. It was the Lord who delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. Make no mistake, Nebuchadnezzar is not the one who's in control here. And in chapter 4, he'll come to see that himself as he's spectacularly humbled. The Lord is the one who's in control here. And again, you just need to turn back to to Jeremiah, this time to chapter 25, where the Lord prophesies exactly what happens here and why it happens. This is judgment from God for his people's deliberate and repeated turning away from him. So this is the the, the big truth, that God reigns, our God reigns over the nations. We trust in the God who reigns. Let's not have too small a view of God. God is the God of the impossible. He is sovereign. He's in control. Nothing takes him by surprise. He can bring down the iron curtain of communism in a matter of days and weeks with little bloodshed. So we can pray for our world with supreme confidence that God reigns even in a hostile world. That nothing, no one is beyond his control. God reigns over Iran, over the Middle East, over Iraq, over Afghanistan. God reigns over nations. But secondly, God reigns in individual lives as well. Even though God has the weight of the the entire universe on his shoulders, the affairs of nations, God is still interested and involved in us as individuals. Look at verse 9 and verse 17. In verse 9, Now God had caused the official to show favour and compassion to Daniel. And in verse 17, To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. So actually God is the one that's, that's pulling the strings here for his people. What encouragement and strength we can draw from from this truth that God reigns even in a hostile land, even in Britain today, even in our workplace, in our home, in our street. And he can work and change and influence and help and encourage. And Daniel knew that truth. And that truth shaped the way he lived and the choices that he made. You see, in in some ways, the choice that Daniel has to to face again and again in this book of, uh, of, of his is fairly simple on one level. Who is Daniel going to fear most? That's the choice that he has to make. Is he going to fear the king? Or is he going to fear the king of kings? Well, we'll see as we go through that that Daniel 
feared God more than Nebuchadnezzar, more than Babylon, despite the, the circumstances he found himself in. He, he trusted God. He knew that the Lord reigns and not Nebuchadnezzar. And that's what, what gave him the strength to stand, even though it was hard. So the question for us is, who do we fear most? It's easy to fear God on a Sunday morning at church. What about tomorrow morning, when we're isolated from the community of our family here, when we're at work, when we're far away from, from home? Well, that's a whole different ballgame, isn't it? Proverbs tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What do the decisions that we make, the things that we find ourselves thinking about most often, what do they reveal about who or what it is that we fear most of all? So here's, here's Daniel, a stranger in a foreign land, It would have been easy for him to think that God had given up or perhaps even didn't exist in the first place. But he never stopped believing and trusting that God reigns even in a hostile world. And because God reigns, he lives to please him. And he lives to please him by engaging with the world around him. He gets on, he works hard. But he doesn't let himself be compromised. So that's the faithfulness that God is looking for, for his people, for us today, living in the UK, in a strange land. That's the faithfulness God calls for, for, for each of us. Are, are we up to the task? Who is it that we fear most? 